hey, what do you want from me? <laughs> Clearly, we are in need of prayer. We're going to come to uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and we do have our pedagogical aid here. At some point, I will write on the whiteboard, so get excited about that. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, thank you um, for the goodness of this morning. Um, what joy it is um, to be able to be together, to be in community, to see people, to love, to laugh, to support and care. We think specifically today about the Freeman family, uh, the unexpected loss of Bill, their, their patriarch, their father, their husband, a deep friend to many in this place. And those are hard to understand, Lord. But in that grief and in the sufferings of this life, we're so thankful for Easter's hope. And that Easter is not merely a day, but it is the fullness of our faith in and through you and your son, Jesus. It is the pinnacle and the hope of our lives each and every day. And so as we come to look at that more specifically, would you open your word to us in Mark and teach us about the nature of your kingdom and you as the king who sits enthroned over all. So Father, overcome the very broken nature of my heart, the darkness and the sin of my life. And Father, you remove me such that only you are seen and honored and glorified. For we pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. And I remind you that you stand this morning. We always stand out of reverence uh, for the inspiration and the authority of God's word. And it comes in two verses in Mark chapter one, when Mark writes, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. It is good news for you, his church. And I pray that the spirit would continue to reveal to us how the hope of Easter is an ever-present reality in all the circumstances of our lives. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So if you've learned anything at all since you've been a member of this church, you should know, sorry, since you've been a covenant partner in this church, get my, I did that whole speech and then I called you a member, gee whiz. So you should know that if you ever come up to an airport gate and you see me sitting in the gate, run, go home, book another flight, but don't get on an airplane with me because odds are something weird is going to happen. Most recent example, Saturday, April 30th, beautiful day in Dallas, Texas. I've been on five airplanes in five days. I'm tired. I just want to get on the airplane and sleep. So I arrive about 8.30 to the airport. I have a 10 o'clock flight. The plane is there. Everything looks good. We get on the plane. They close the forward boarding door. But in, in my window seat, I look out and there are guys wearing shirts and ties and they're pointing at the plane. Never a good sign. Pilot comes on and he goes, we've just discovered that this plane on its descent 
was struck by a bird. And we're going to have to inspect the hole to be sure that this plane can fly. The problem is that the mechanical maintenance crew is actually at another airport right now, and it'll take them an hour to get here. I can't explain that to you. I don't have time, but what? Okay, so we get off the plane. Maintenance crew comes. They wash off the carcass, look at the hole. We're good to go. Everybody gets back on the plane. Ford boarding door closes. And all of a sudden, as we're about to push back, bam, all the power goes off. No lights, no air, no engines, nothing, no power. Pilot comes on, says, I'm sorry, the main power supply at the gate has blown. We're gonna have to bring in an alternate power supply on a truck. That'll take an hour. So plane comes in, power supply is is brought along. And uh, wait, I forgot one important detail. So after we get on the plane, after the bird carcass incident, we fly to Atlanta, okay? So I'm now in Atlanta when the power supply goes off. That's on a different airplane. So it's now, I miss my connecting flight. It's four o'clock, power supply goes out, new truck comes, power goes back on, everything's good. We're gonna take off for Orlando. And then all of a sudden there is commotion on the back of the plane. There is a child who is choking. Okay, so you can't be mad at a child for choking, right? You're, you're kind of in that. And they're, they're calling for doctors. They call the paramedics. Oh, there's, there's craziness on the plane. Bunch of people rush back there. They saved the child. Good news, child is okay. But apparently in the process, there, and I, I don't know why, can't explain it, but there was some blood. So the pilot comes on, he says, we're gonna have to get the hazardous materials crew to come and to clean up the blood. An hour later, the materials crew comes, they clean it up, they go off. It's now, we got, I got on that plane about 3.15. It's now about 6.30, all right? So the plane goes off, the, the crew goes off, the family is settled down, everything is good. They close the forward boarding door, power goes off again, right? So, they, and the pilot comes on, we have lost the temporary power supply, which means we're gonna have to get another truck. And every time the power goes off, we have to reload the flight plan. That takes 20 minutes. So it'll probably be about another hour before we can take off. So they open the forward boarding door so people can walk around. 20% of the plane gets up and walks off, right? They're like, we're done. So alternate power supply comes, power goes back on. Okay, it's now been three and a half hours, no food, no water. It's getting tense, okay? People are getting very testy. So the power comes back on, they close the forward boarding door, they start to move back, power goes out again. If it's gonna happen, people, it's gonna happen to me, right? And so now they open the boarding door. They said, you know what? It's not a power supply problem. It's a computer problem. We just need to change the computer. So they open the forward boarding door, 25% of the plane, they get off, right? So now only about half the plane's full. And I, along with four others, we have a come to Jesus meeting with the pilot. Imagine that. So I go up to the pilot and I'm like, dude, what, is this plane safe? Right, and... And at that point, this woman who is with me wags her finger at the pilot and she says, are you flying this plane to Orlando? And the captain says, yes, ma'am, I'm the captain. She said, that is not what I asked you. I asked you if you are gonna fly this plane to Orlando. And he looks at his watch and he says, yeah, I don't time out till 1030. I am going to fly this plane. I absolutely believe it's safe. So she and I look at each other. I'm like, if he's in, I'm in. So we sit down. The good news is 15 hours later, we land in Orlando. Everything's good. What a mess. Don't ever fly with me. But here's the thing. 
right? It's not just in malfunctioning airplanes that you feel that way, right? In all of life, you're gonna run into situations and circumstances that leave you feeling insecure, leave you feeling unsteady or unsafe. There's a sense of disequilibrium. There's craziness that is happening. And in your mind, you're thinking the same thing that that woman was thinking. You have the same question. You're wondering, is there anybody that's running the show here? Because it seems like it's all out of control. Is anybody in charge? Is anybody sitting in the right seat? And can I entrust my life to that person? And that thought and that question has deep spiritual implications. Because when we experience human suffering, when we enter into a season of grief, as we have seen in this church, in my opinion, more than our fair share in the last month. We look at the Lord and we're like, do you not see this? And it's a fair question to say, you know, God, it seems like maybe you're asleep at the wheel. Are you in charge? Are you on the throne? And the answer is a resounding yes. The answer is Easter morning. The answer is the resurrection, but see what happens to us too often is we think Easter is about the forgiveness of sins and we get to go to heaven and then we go, so what? We kind of tuck Easter away. Like, does Easter mean anything else other than we've forgiven and we're gonna have heaven forever and ever? Is there more to it than that? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. But we don't spend enough time talking about it, which is why we're in this series for the next few weeks called Rediscovering Hope. We need to understand how the resurrection not only changes our salvation, not only changes our future, but it changes our present. It changes today. It changes every single day of our lives that we live in Christ. They should be filled with Easter hope. And that's what gets us to Mark chapter one this morning. Now I will share, I probably told you this before, Mark is 100% my favorite gospel. Why? Because Mark is my kind of guy. Mark is direct. Mark does not pull any punches. He gets right to the point. He dispenses with all the pleasantries. You don't get any birth narratives in Mark. You don't get any genealogies. In the first nine verses, you get a little bit of John the Baptist and then bam, verse nine, Jesus is a fully functioning adult, right? In just nine verses. And then by verse 14, Mark gets right down to the heart of the matter. And he says, here it is, the time, and that's not chronos, that's kairos. That's spiritual time. That's God's time. The time of God, in essence, has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So what Mark says to us in that statement is the reassurance that you all have been yearning for, that I've been yearning for in the midst of our hardships. What Mark is telling us is that the kingdom, and by definition, the presence of the king who comes with the kingdom, they have come near. The king is here. And there's a reason I put that video up of the Nicene Creed. That was actually done by an EPC church in Richmond, Virginia. A Hope EPC, that was actually done by their staff. But I use that because did you see, when you get to the place where he's crucified, dead and buried, and then there's a pause. And then did you see the flash? There's a flash of a throne. See, in the moment of the resurrection of Jesus, 
What we find is a consummation of what had been promised all through the Old Testament, that a king would come, that a Messiah was going to arrive and was going to rule over Israel, not in the way they thought. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he confirmed that he was indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's our resurrection hope. But it wasn't just that day. Listen to how Tim Keller describes it. He says it is more than a suspension of the world's natural order. See, when we look at resurrection, we go, wow, what a huge miracle. We're suspending the world's natural order. No, it's more than that. He says it's the beginning of the restoration of the natural order of the world, the world as God intended it to be. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning, the inauguration of the coming kingdom of God in which everything is going to be restored to the perfect way that God wants it to be in the new heaven and the new earth. It's the beginning of that entire process. It's the beginning of chapter four in the four chapter gospel, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, right? And so we look at this as the beginning. The resurrection of Jesus starts this restorative work, but there's, there's one small problem with that, isn't there? It hasn't fully come yet, has it? I mean, we hear, oh, the kingdom's coming. Oh, that's such great news. I want, yes, I want the kingdom to come. But then we realize it's actually not completely here. As one writer put it, the kingdom has substantially come, but not fully come. So what does that mean exactly? Let me put it like this. A few months ago, actually the Monday after Thanksgiving, Lee and I decided we were going to renovate our house, right? In 34 years of marriage, we had never done this, but we felt after 34 years, we might be able to survive it. And I would say the jury's probably still out, but you know, we we tear everything out because our house is is 19 years old and apparently woefully out of style, according to my wife. How we have lived all this time in such an unstylish house, it is a miracle, apparently. But we said, okay, we're gonna redo our kitchen and our master bath. It gets torn down to the studs and then crickets, right? Weeks go by, months go by, no workers, no supplies, can't find either. And so we just look at studs all the time. Then one day in late February, I get a phone call from Lee and she says, the workers are here. The kingdom had come, people. (laughs) And so I am so excited. I am just jumping up and down in my office. I struggled to work the rest of the day in anticipation of what I'm gonna find when I get home. And finally, I walk in the door and all of a sudden I realize the kingdom has come substantially, but not fully. Right, there is debris everywhere, there is dust. There is a film of dust on everything. But I can still peer through the dust and I can see the form. I can see things beginning to shake shape. My kitchen looks a little different. I can tell where the cabinets are gonna go. I can see where the tub's gonna go in the bathroom. So it had substantially come, but it hadn't fully come. And that's Easter, right? The kingdom has substantially come. We can see it amidst the dust and the debris. We can see it taking shape, but it's not fully here. Listen to what James Stewart, I read this on my study leave last week. He's a British preacher. And he says this of Easter, at Easter, the kingdom of God. See, Jesus raised from the dead. He's the king. The kingdom of God has broken in with power. Its consummation 
still lay out of sight, waiting for the fullness of that time and the completion of the purposes of God. But the new epic foretold by the prophets had actually dawned from the realm of the invisible beyond. The once far off divine event has suddenly projected itself into history. No longer were they dreaming of the kingdom age. They were living it. It had arrived. So it's come substantially. The epic of God's kingdom is here. And then at the same time, Jesus is very careful to tell us, but not fully. Remember when he taught the disciples to pray? What do we pray? Thy kingdom come. Why do we pray that? Because it's not fully here yet. So you and I need to be regularly praying the kingdom will come. In Matthew 13, when Jesus is talking about using a parable, he says the kingdom of God is like this. He says like a mustard seed. It starts with something barely visible to the naked eye. It starts small and it grows very slowly and very gradually over a long, long period of time until finally it springs up into a beautiful, functioning, enormous shade tree. That's the kingdom of God. So let me kind of draw it out for you. So if this is kind of chronological human time, right? This is where we are. We're kind of living in time. And right here, as James Stewart said, a new epic begins. It is the resurrection of Jesus, big R, right? And the resurrection is a result of the first coming of Christ. That inaugurates the new age. It inaugurates this alternative kingdom, a new kingdom of which, we, of which we are all citizens by faith. It's the kingdom of God. So this is the kingdom of the world. Here's the kingdom of God. And at some point right here, the kingdom of God is gonna go on into eternity. But at some point, what happens? We have the second coming of Christ. So this age, the current evil age, as the scriptures describe it, it will come to an end at the second coming. But where do we live? We live right here. We live between what is already and what is yet to come. This is our space. And we don't know where we are in time. We don't know if we're right here. I don't know. We may be all the way back here. We may be up here. We're not sure where we are. We just know We live here between the already and the not yet. So there's a part of us that says, bummer. I'd rather be in the yet to come phase. I wanna be in the full kingdom, right? But that's not where you and I are living. So let's not be discouraged by that, but instead let's look at the benefits at a kingdom that has substantially come. So our Easter hope today is found in the substantial elements of the kingdom that are already here. What are they? Number one, truth. I mean, my goodness, people, in a world that is so confused, in a world where you're getting so much information, the question that I get asked maybe more than any other is how do I know what's true? How do I know what to believe? The answer is you stack it up against the word of God because here it is. If Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning and was seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father, then he is who he said he was. And if he is who he said he was, then what he said in the scriptures is true. We know what truth is. You see it in Jesus and you see it in his word. Ephesians 1.19, Paul writes, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. So at the resurrection, the kingdom is inaugurated and God in Christ is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in this kingdom and in the kingdom that is to come. He's the King, but then what do we find in Luke 24, 27? Jesus speaking to the disciples, it says this, on the road to Emmaus, remember this? The resurrected Christ, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus sits down and he does Bible study with the disciples. The Bible that Jesus read was the Old Testament. And he says to them, let me show you how the Old Testament is actually about me, which is why as a church, we believe in the biblical narrative. We believe that the scripture is simply one long story that tells the story of God's plan to redeem and save the world by the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the primary character. Jesus is the pinnacle. And so what he says in Luke 24, I'm the king. Let me show you how the whole book, starting with Moses, the prophets, and everything that's been said in the scripture is actually about me. You wanna know what's true? In the hope of Easter, we have God's word. We have the word made flesh in Jesus and we depend on those things. Second, we have the hope of both growth and change. If Jesus is the king and he inaugurates a new kingdom, then rest assured, things are gonna change. The kingdom of God does not operate according to the kingdom of this world. And things are going to be different. It's not a static kingdom. It's a dynamic kingdom. When you come to Christ, he loves you right where you are, but he's not gonna leave you there. He's gonna continue to change you and grow you. Second Peter 1, 2. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory, you, all of you, may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. So we escape from the kingdom of the world because we're partakers of the divine nature. What does it mean to partake? It means you have a portion of something. You don't get all of it, you get a piece of it. You get a portion of it. So when you partake, you get a portion of the divine nature in you. And what is God gonna do? When that portion takes up root in your heart, you're gonna change and grow which is why 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. God wants to change us and grow us. So you wanna know the hope of Easter? You wanna know the hope of a kingdom that has substantially come? You can change. You can. God can change you. You can change your heart. You can change your marriage. You can. It might not feel like it. But the kingdom of God says there's hope. You can change the relationship you have with your children. Children, you can change the relationship that you have with your parents. You can change your work. And if that can happen, then we can change the church. And my goodness, when you look at how God has transformed this church in the last three years, it's astounding. It's remarkable. And if God can change the church, then he can change social structures. He can change neighborhoods. He can change workplaces. He can change schools. He can change communities. Friends, God, and and that's what we see in the scriptures over and over again. You got all the disciples in fear in the upper room and all of a sudden, after the day of Pentecost, what happens? They're boldly proclaiming the gospel. 
right? Why? Because the resurrected Christ had changed their hearts. Or what about Paul? He's out there persecuting Christians because he believes that the way to salvation is by keeping the law. So he threatens the Christians, but then the resurrected Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus and Paul becomes the most prolific writer in the whole New Testament. Or what about that cowering, anxiety-riddled 24-year-old kid who went on to become your pastor? Or what about that star football player at Boone High School who went on to play for Bear Bryant at the University of Alabama? And then his life goes sideways, he gets put in prison. He finds Jesus and today he visits people in prison and is almost Christ-centered, gentle spirits. You'll know God changed Robin Parkhouse. Or what about a young man who grew up in an Indian Sikh household, an Indian sect? It's the one where they wear the turbans and have the long beards. He grew up believing those things and yet he comes to the US. He becomes a star in a rock and roll band, moves to Orlando and by chance goes on an Indian princess camp out with his daughter, meets two guys from First Presbyterian Church who tell him about Jesus and he gets baptized right up here. God changed the life of Giddy Khalsa. People, I could go on and on. The kingdom of God, the resurrection of Jesus means the hope of change and transformation. Anthony Hokema writes this, the signs of the times reveal that the great victory of Christ has been won and therefore the decisive change in history has occurred. That's the resurrection. It's the fork in the road of human history. They reveal that God is at work in the world, busy fulfilling his promises and bringing to realization the final consummation of redemption. They reveal the central meaning of history. Here it is. The Lord rules and is working out his purposes. The Lord rules and is working out his purposes. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's why we love testimonies. Because every time we hear someone say, this is what God has done in my life. That's a taste of the kingdom of God. It lets us see resurrection power at work in someone's life that we know right in front of us. That's the nature of the kingdom. The hope of Easter, the hope of the resurrection is that you can change. The church can change and grow. The world can be transformed by the resurrection power, by the kingship of our God in Christ. And then the last thing that we have what the kingdom brings us when it comes substantially is the hope of new freedom. The first thing, you have the hope of being set free from shame and guilt in regard to your sin. And frankly, I struggle with this. A lot of you struggle with this. God has forgiven you, but you can't seem to forgive yourself. You keep heaping guilt and shame on yourself because of things that happened in the past. But people, when the kingdom comes substantially, God wants to set you free from that. And I, I saw this interview and I think it connects so well. There was a woman who was talking to somebody about the way in which we internalize uh, wounds and scars. And it's so hard for us to let them go. But she said, if you and I were in a conversation and I was talking to you and I was saying to you the most horrible, vile things you can imagine, but I was saying them to you in a language that you didn't understand, it would have no impact on you because you wouldn't know what I'm saying. You wouldn't be able to internalize it because you don't understand the words. The substantially come kingdom is when God by his spirit begins to jumble the words of the enemy and his discouragement and his deception, his accusations 
of guilt and shame, we stop being able to hear it because it's drowned out by who God has called us to be, who God has declared us to be as his beloved sons and daughters. Second, it sets us free from our fear of death. Hebrews chapter two, verse 12, it says, Christ shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. All of us are unsettled by that. Whenever we hear that someone has died, it pushes us up against the reality of our own mortality. And we don't know what to do with that. The substantially come kingdom, arriving at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, tells us, as George Herbert, the great poet said, the resurrection makes death no longer an executioner, but a gardener. All death means is that you and I are replanted in the eternal garden of the kingdom of God. We live, we live. And then the last thing that the coming kingdom does for us is it delivers us from all the powers and the rulers and the authorities and the false gods of this world. Colossians 2:14, having canceled our indebtedness and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them all. That's referring to the resurrection. Jesus made a public spectacle of them all. We are so tempted in our confusion, in our pain, in our suffering to run to the rulers and the authorities and to bow at the altars of the false idols of our world. But Jesus at the resurrection, you know what that means? It means when he rose, he mocked. He made a public spectacle of them. He mocked those on the first day, on the day of the cross. Everybody said, look, see, we won, he's dead. When he rose again, he revealed to us what we said at the beginning, that he is the king. And that all those authorities and rulers are false gods. They're empty promises. It's empty hope. And so we depend on the power of the risen Christ. You know, uh, I spent the last two weeks on my annual study leave and I always plan it um, so that my birthday falls uh, during that uh, period so I can be away from my birthday because I don't know, maybe you're like me on my birthday, that's like a super reflective time for me. And I like to think about the last year. I like to think about what God's doing in my life. But I, I spent a lot of time thinking about family, about aging, about what God was doing in my life, about things like legacy. And as I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about this message, the, the coming of the kingdom of God, not fully, but substantially. It's so interesting to me. You know that if, if you made a line of people, a chain, and it was all of your relatives, so I'd be here, and the next to be would be my dad, and the next to him would be my grandfather, and then my great-grandfather, and then my great-great-grandfather, and so on. And you just set that line up, your family tree, your genealogy. Do you know that it's only 100 people between me and the time of Jesus? Isn't that crazy? And yet all through that time, 
Jesus came here. And if let's say we're here, it's just a hundred people in your family. And yet through all of those things, what has endured? The kingdom of God substantially come. And what's happened to that kingdom through all these generations? It's grown. Somehow it got from your relative a hundred generations later to you. And so the question becomes, what are we gonna do with it as we live between what is already and what is yet to come? We don't simply live in the hope of Easter morning alone, but we live in the hope of Easter representing to us and showing us that God in Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that we know truth, that we know growth, that we know change, that we know freedom, that our lives have purpose, that we are citizens of this new kingdom and that our legacy for generations to come is that we lived faithfully into that kingdom. May that be our legacy and the hope and the promise of this church as we seek to be God's people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that Easter goes on, that contained in your resurrection are so many rich truths that we saw you in Christ seated on the throne because your resurrection showed us that you were the promised king. And so as your kingdom has been inaugurated, Father, I pray that indeed it would change and transform our lives as we seek to know and live out what is true, as we experience the freedoms that you promise us by your spirit. May we be more and more a kingdom people such that your kingdom becomes our legacy for generations to come, generations that will bring you glory and honor, we pray. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.